I had a team of 65 people within a larger organization that had been around for 20 years. You know, I had staff that worked for me by that point when I joined, they'd been over 10 years with the company. And I walked in the office and I'm the new boss. And no lie, the only thing I hear in the office was just the sound of keyboards. To make it more extreme, because they were a 10 cent company, portfolio company, they actually wouldn't talk to each other. And if they wanted to talk, they'd be sitting next to each other. They would chat over QQ rather than actually talk. Rather than turn around and look at the person and actually have a conversation, they would rather chat. And I went, oh dear, we're supposed to be a, a, a tech company and we need a tech culture. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new Service Hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. Smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture ecosystem, and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. Thank you for having me on Billion Dollar Moves. Good, good. Well, Lake Tahoe, it is a hard life for some people, but of <laughs> course you are on a sabbatical. But let's let's sort of rewind a little bit and, and yep. you know bring the story of who Tiwa York is and who he's come to be in the last couple of years, the last couple of decades. A little bird told me that your first job was actually a star in soap opera. <laughs> oh no, oh dear. <laughs> Tell us about yeah. this and then how did this merge into digital media <laughs> and then the classifieds business? Well, we should probably go a little bit further back than that. I started in digital in 1996, worked for a startup in Portland, Oregon. I actually dropped out of school to go work for them and took that job and worked for them, made myself to be a product manager for them. And then 2000, the company had already listed and I decided it was time for me to go be a kid. So I left that job, told my boss I would like to quit, told the CEO I'd like to quit, ended up leaving the job in the summer of 2000 and decided I wanted to travel the world. So my original plan was to do 16 countries in 10 months. I ended up in Thailand and I am half Thai. So there's a connection there. I ended up doing two countries in 20 years because I met my wife. I ended up staying in Thailand. And during that first period in Thailand, didn't really have much plans, taught a bit of English, did a little bit of acting. It is true that I did do a soap opera in Thailand. 
And if I was any good as an actor, I probably would have never gone back to my entrepreneurial <laughs> roots. You know, you, you know that you're a poor actor when even your parents go, wow, that was bad. <laughs> oh, no. Well, at so, least something that you, you sort of checked off your bucket list. Did you do it for a couple of years? Yeah. So, I mean, as much as I could get jobs, I also taught English part-time during that right. period of my life until I ran completely out of money. And mm. I realized I was turning 30 and I was, I was completely out of cash. Mm. I realized maybe I should get back to my career back in tech. And that's when I dove back in. I met some guys that were doing an, a startup in the advertising space, digital advertising space. And they asked me to come on board and help them build the business. So that's why I did. And I started that in 2004. We together, we built the largest digital agency in Thailand, one of the early ones and was the largest at the time. We built the first ad network in Southeast Asia. We built what was then MSN Thailand. We did performance agency, a whole bunch of stuff around the digital advertising space and content space. And so that started in 2004 and did that until 2000, till the end of 2010, until I left that business. Yeah. For a little bit of context here, just because we have a global audience, what was the landscape like? I mean, to build essentially MSN Thailand. Um, and I know, of course, you always speak about the difference even within the region, right? I mean, Asia in itself yeah. is between Thailand, between Vietnam, or they, they're all fairly different. How was the digital advertising space at that time? Well, first of all, there was no money. So mm-hmm. we used to get excited about ad budgets that were over $1,000, if we got one ad budget that was a thousand dollars, we were like, "Woo, this is awesome!" And if we actually got to ten thousand dollars, it was we were over the moon. I mean, we didn't have any budgets going to digital. Everybody was saying, "Oh, I shouldn't be spending that." And so we really worked hard to try to convince brands and companies in Southeast Asia at that time to actually spend on digital. It was mm-hmm. a crazy time because all the money was going to TV. And so, right. you know, one of my favorite stories was I had signed a contract. It's called an AOR, Agency of Record. And it was the first of its kind in, in Thailand with a major company, a major brand. I had negotiated this deal with them and it was a $500,000 one-year contract. And we had negotiated for six months. And finally, the, the boss, the, she, she ran the media budget for marketing for this company she walked in. She goes, Tiwa, what, why are we meeting again? And I said, I'm not quite sure. I just know that the contract's not done. And she looked at me. She goes, hmm. She looked over at the purchasing officer and she said, I just walked here on my way to this meeting. I just signed a $1 million two-month TV budget. And why am I still talking to Tiwa about a $500,000 one-year budget? Hmm. She goes, could we just sign this already? And I was like, thank you please. Thank you. Oh my God. Thank you. And that was 2005. And I think the landscape has changed massively since then. But back in those days, we fought tooth and nail to try to get any budget from brands to understand and spend on digital. And in 2005, we decided that we would expand our, our footprint beyond Thailand. And we decided that we would go to Vietnam first and Philippines Singapore, Malaysia, and then eventually Indonesia, we were naive. 
we thought, ah, oh, yeah, this, we did it in Thailand. We could do it someplace else. Right. And what we quickly learned was, yeah, well, each country is very, very different. The ways of doing business are very different from each individual country. And like I said, we were very naive. And we yeah. learned a lot and very quickly learned that business is very different in each individual country within the region. For example, we went to Vietnam. In Thailand, nobody likes to sign a contract. So mm-hmm. your basic contract is literally like two pages. And mm-hmm. so you put it in two pages. Nobody will sign anything longer than that. We go to Vietnam, it's 30 pages. And they will not accept two pages because they're basically like, I don't trust you. Mm-hmm. Which in Thailand is a different deal. In Thai culture is, um, I trust you. And if you ever screw me, the, the rest of the community will know and you're kind of done in your career. Yeah. We got to Philippines and Philippines, you walk in as a sales guy and you think, wow, I just had the greatest meeting ever. And they are so polite. And they say, yes, sir. It's so, yes, we, we like this. 10 months later, we still don't have a deal done. And what we didn't understand was the yes, sir. The yes, sir was a polite way of saying, no, I'm never going to buy from you. (laughs) I thought, wow, I just had the greatest meeting ever. The reality was I didn't understand how business is done and how the culture was trying to politely tell me no. Right. Mm. Indonesia was a whole other experience because when we got to Indonesia at that time, that whole the whole digital scene, there was nothing there. It was literally crickets chirping. You walk in and do a digital situation. It's like nobody knew anything. And our guy, Peter Goldsworthy, who's still there, he was running our business. He would call me and goes, too, I I don't know how to run this country because nobody talks about digital. And this is 2007, 2008, right? And then that's almost crazy. Exactly. It's, it's almost crazy to imagine because today it is a very different scene in Indonesia yes. with the super apps, with the rise of digital and everything. They're yeah. almost being the hub, right? For it is, it is. It's the most important country in Southeast Asia now. And that all changed in 2011. It's, it's mm. when, you know, we were there 2007, 2008, couldn't hire people, couldn't find people with any experience. Then suddenly 2011 hits and the whole country changed overnight. Yeah. So what what happened there? I mean, it seems like you were very early on in the evolution of digital and and where Asia was heading. And of course, today it's a very different picture. But 2011 seems to be what many say, you know, after 2010, things changed rapidly. What was that about the region that created that shift? So actually, it was Indonesia. It's all about Indonesia. Um, and Singapore as well. Singapore did something great in the early 2000s when they set up their funds really targeting the startup industry. They were the first mover in Southeast Asia and in Asia, really, that were really focused with JFDI and really pushing that. And so they started investing. The other thing that happened with Indonesia pushing this and really developing the startup culture out of Singapore was what happened in Indonesia was the world started looking at Indonesia. And so before that, it was all the Brecky countries. So you're is 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 the BRIC country. So it was Brazil, Russia, India, China. By 2010, 2011, they started to realize this kind of played out and they were looking for the next one. And Indonesia on a population standpoint made sense. 
untapped. And so it became the from brick countries became bricky. That's what really changed the whole map for Southeast mm. Asia, along with Singapore's efforts. Singapore invested so much into this, but in reality was their four or five million person country, one island. It's not going to move it. So where do we focus on? Indonesia makes sense. And so I think that's, in my opinion, that's what really changed the map. It changed. And funny from our perspective was we were sitting in Thailand and Thailand on all the metrics makes sense. But Thailand still remains to this day in 2021, remains this enigma in the world of going, why doesn't this take off from Thailand? And we were sitting in mm. Thailand trying to raise money. Money was flowing into Vietnam in 2007. And suddenly right. in 2010, money shifted over to Indonesia. And we were still sitting in, in, in Thailand going, hello, did you, did you forget somebody? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and with Vietnam, of course, there's an interesting, I guess, phenomenon where the VIQ, the refugees, right, yes. that, that started investing back into the yeah. region. Um, that was and I guess it's the Thailand expat community that that's next. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that needs so to invest was, people like you. You know, <laughs> you're, you're spot on. Which is what happened in 2007 was the Viet Q, the expat and the immigrant community, all the kids that had moved to the United States, started reinvesting, and that was what sparked it in 2007, and continues mm. to push the the industry and investment in Vietnam continues to push it there. So it was the big spark. Thailand remains a weird place because of it. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of, I, I think there's. If if we really want to go into it, we can touch on this a yeah. bit. But what are the idiosyncrasies of Thailand? A never been colonized, so very on its own, closed, closed language. People don't understand the language. It's not Romanized, so you can't even cross over very easily. It just kind of operates in its own bubble. And mm. and people just don't really understand it. You've got incredible companies coming out of there, but just not the startup world, right? Mm. I mean, you've got Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies that are founded out of Thailand. It's just this startup world that is has struggled over the years. And of course, talking about transition in time, 2010, 2011, about that time, you moved over to Kaidi as well. Is that right? Yeah. So I um, jumped ship from that startup world of advertising and um, did a very short stint with a global advertising firm called Omnicom Media Group, right. helped them set up their digital um, business and only did that part-time for a very short period and then jumped over to what is today Kaidi. I was hired by the board of directors that included a couple global names, Naspers and Tencent, to clean up their portfolio in Thailand, particularly their e-commerce portfolio. So I went into that and looked at their portfolio, and we started what became Kaidi and shut down all the rest of the businesses that were in the portfolio at that time. Mm. So just started dipping my toes into the world of e-commerce and learned quickly about e-commerce and marketplaces and platforms and really applying what I learned in marketing and advertising into building a brand and building what became Kaidi eventually. 
Yeah, so so this is an interesting transition. Actor turned uh, startup <laughs> guy trying to figure it out in the digital media space at a time where actor is still... generous. Actor is very <laughs> generous. <laughs> side, you know, there's this word in Cantonese is caliphate, like the sidekick, the sidekick of a of a sitcom or so. But <laughs> okay, let's put it actor. Let's be generous here. Actor <laughs> turned media person turned digital media trying to figure it out during a difficult time. Um, and then bring, brought in actually to be essentially the fixer of yeah. what was, uh, it, I think it's fair to say it was a little bit of a mess with, yeah. with the portfolio and there were a lot of issues and I understand it as well. I think this is pretty known. There were multiple stakeholders. Kaidi went through a couple of things to say the least. Tell yeah. us a little bit about, you know, what, what did you bring from your last few chapters into Kaidi that you think really helped you in, in navigating? The most important thing was I knew how I, what I didn't want to do. I knew that I wanted to change the way that business was done, particularly managing the team. And so I, you know, over the years of having run these businesses in Thailand um, and managing teams, I'd read all the books. I had read all these things, you know, whether it's good to great, seven habits, one minute manager, I've read all these things. I've mm-hmm. tried all these ways and nothing ever worked. And so I went to Kaidi and into this situation, I was actually inheriting a team. I had a team of 65 people, 70 people that I inherited. And they had a very different culture. And I knew that I wanted to do something different. I wanted to mix a bit of the Silicon Valley, you know, my roots of having done a startup in Portland and worked for a startup in Portland, didn't do it myself, worked for a startup in Portland, but seeing this culture, I thought, how do we merge this with Thailand and Asia? And how do we put these two things together? And when I started on this journey, people told me both Thai managers and foreign managers, these are business owners, Mm -hmm. they both told me, you can't do that in Thailand. You can't manage Thais like this. And Mm -hmm. I basically looked at the situation and I said, we can't. You told me that we can't. I don't believe that. Um, And that was the journey that maybe we can talk about today, which is where that journey lead me. But I knew I wanted to do something different. And to give you an idea of what culture I walked into, I had a team of 65 people within a larger organization um, that had been around for 20 years. You know, I had staff that worked for me By that point, when I joined, they'd been over 10 years with the company. And I walked in the office and I'm the new boss. And no lie, the only thing I hear in the office was just the sound of keyboards. To make it more extreme, because they were a 10 cent company, portfolio company, they actually wouldn't talk to each other. And if they wanted to talk, they'd be sitting next to each other. They would chat over QQ rather than actually talk rather than turn around and look at the person and actually have a conversation, they would rather chat. And I went, oh dear, Um, we're supposed to be a a tech company and we need a tech culture. Communication is probably the most important thing you can do in an organization. We Mm -hmm. need to change this. And it took us a very long journey. And I learned a lot along the way and learned a lot more about how I do things and why I would do it. Because I was still trying to apply what I read in books to yeah. 
this organization and it didn't work. Again, it didn't work. I'd already failed in my previous organizations. Once again, I'm failing again to understand how do I influence this organization and move them towards a culture that is uh, more conducive to innovation and um, transformation and how do we get things done better and faster and have fun while doing it. And you talk about this a lot about even just doing business East versus West. They are very different. And, you know, a lot of managers, a lot of senior folks that are hired out to go and grow local businesses often fail because, I mean, you look at even a brand like Uber, right? That's a reason why Uber backed out from certain markets because they just didn't get it in the way. There are really idiosyncrasies that exist here. And, and you know, that example, uh, as an Asian myself from Malaysia, I, you know, I'm not surprised. Communication is very different. Not to say one is better than the other. It's just different, right? And you need, you need to address it in a different way. But as we're thinking about innovation, right, to your point of how do you create a culture that really is actually almost creating a bubble for yourself because the, you know there's a reason why that was the reality you, you stepped into right because outside um there is a you know a saying of you shouldn't wear your heart on your sleeve too much um there is even the belief that a nail more i guess more so in Japan but in certain places as well a nail that sticks out gets hammered down whereas yep. in America places like that you're celebrated for being different right whereas in different cultures it's almost like you want to not rock the boat too much. So how did you think about this? And how did you actually think about Kaidi? And, and of course, you want to talk about the Kaidi business as well. Well, the, the, the lessons actually go all the way back to 2004. Um, I, I came in, I started managing, building this business with my with the co with the founders and I was, they put me in charge of managing the team and I speak Thai. So speak Thai can read and write Thai, but I didn't understand Thailand. So I was managing a small team of um, designers and programmers. And I was completely frustrated because I couldn't get any, um, I, I couldn't, couldn't get any traction with them. And I actually came home, and at the time, um, my my wife, she we hadn't gotten married yet, but she was my girlfriend, and I was so frustrated. And she looks at me, and she goes, what's your problem? And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm so frustrated with this situation. And she sat me down. She goes, settle down. Explain to me what happened. And I told her the situation was the the team was – not cooperative with me. I was trying to manage them, doing the right thing for the company. And I understand Thai. And I told her exactly what happened. And I told him what they said. And she goes, she goes, Tiwa, you understand the words. You didn't understand the meaning. Mm. Wow. And what she really was teaching me was I wasn't listening to my team and why they were frustrated with me. I was thinking that I was doing the right thing, but I wasn't hearing what they were trying to tell me because they couldn't, they wouldn't be direct to say, stop doing this, do this. They were more, um, I would call it, it's a silent stubbornness. Silent stubbornness. Love it. Yeah. So they'll, they'll talk to me, they'll say certain words, but they'll be silent and stubborn. So, okay, boss, I understand what you want me to do. I disagree with you. Fine, I'll do mm-hmm. it if you make me do it. 
And I didn't understand that. And my wife was the one who said, Tiwa, <laughs> tell me exactly what happened. Tell me exactly what they said. And I told her exactly what they said in Thai. And she goes, you didn't understand what they said. I went, oh. And that was my first massive lesson of managing in Asia was how do you listen to the staff? Um, what foreigners may misunderstand is they believe silence is either they don't know or they're idiots or they're stupid. They actually don't know what to say. And actually, it turns out to be, no, they're just not willing to say it to you directly. And it's a very roundabout. I think this exists across Asia. I'm not going to tell you directly because that's disrespectful, but I'm going to tell you in my way and you better listen to it. And I think a lot of international companies that come into the market don't get this topic. They don't understand how to navigate and understand that the, the language and the culture is not, it's indirect. And in fact, it's even down to the language is indirect. So Asian languages are circular. And in fact, we don't, we're unable to do like future perfect tense does not exist in Asian languages. You, can't, you cannot say, I will have read Harry Potter <laughs> next year. It, that Those words do not exist. Yeah. However, in English, we go, yeah, I can place myself in the future and say, at that point in time, this will be a completed action that the book Harry Potter, I have read it. The only thing we can do in Asian language is say, I will read Harry Potter next year. And understand the indirect around about way that language works and the culture works was a big lesson for me to understand how do I better manage and listen to my team to understand them. Mm. And by the way, it takes, is, I'm still learning. It's it's not a it's not an overnight success, but it's also trying to get a better feel for how that works, and it, you know it, it also changes by culture, by country, how yeah. you do this. But you know, my example of Philippines earlier of walking in and going, but they said yes. What they yeah. really meant was, I'm politely telling you, no, sir. Do you? Know? Yeah. Right. I totally relate and, and resonate with your experience here because, you know, I remember we were doing deals with Americans and they would be very direct, right? I think you'll be very clear whether this deal is not on or is on. Whereas in Asia, it's like, you know, there's a lot of dating yes. <laughs> before the deal actually happens and dating comes with multiple mixed messages. So, so this is very interesting. But how do you then motivate a, a team where, first of all, okay, you have to understand everyone is so different how do you, yeah. and of course, Kaidi, I think, you know, last I checked uh, about the time of the acquisition, it was seven to 10 million users. So it was not a small business. You know, I mean, of course, you know, you say, yeah, we're only doing eight to $10 million, but it's still not a small business, right? It's not a, you know, mom and pop shop where there are a couple of folks that you have to address. You've got yeah. teams here, you've got different goals. Talk to us about how you navigated this with, with such intricacies to manage. So there, there's a mad journey, and I can tell you what, what the goal was. The goal and the journey to get there are two different things. So we set out, when I, when I took over the business, and I set out to try to change the culture and prove to my friends and colleagues that you could bring a bit of Silicon Valley into Thailand and into Asia and use these 
these concepts of agile and openness and transparency in a culture and really bring empowerment to the team. Well, that was the goal. But one of the ways to do that was how do you create openness? So the the big challenge in Asia is that we are, as Asians, um, and being half Asian, that we're taught, like, keep keep in your lane. Don't rock the boat. This is what you're supposed to do. And by the way, don't make mistakes. Oh, don't do that. That that's a mistake. Oh, that that that's going to hurt you, child. Or no, that's wrong. Don't do that. So we're kind of, as a very stereotype, taught to be in your lane. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop, but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts. So how do you create an openness inside your organization that people are willing to express themselves? Mm. The, the thing in Thailand, and it's, it's, it's true across Asia, particularly East Asia, um, skill sets there, creativity is there, know-how is there, willingness is there. The problem is they're not, they won't express it. So the team won't express these things and they won't bring it forward unless specifically asked. So they won't tell you, oh, we have to do it this way. They will sit there and go, okay, boss, we can do it your way. Unless you ask me, I'm not going to tell you. So the thing was, how do you create an openness where the team feels that they can express themselves safely? They're not going to get shut down. Because in Thai culture and Asian culture is deference to the senior. Oh, well, it's not my place to do that. I'm It's not my role. It's not my job. I'm not senior enough to express how I think or how I feel. And nobody asked me. So I'll just keep to myself, right? That's what we're taught. And that is what's fundamental to the culture. So then in running a business, how do you change that? How do you make it so that people feel like I want to express myself? It's not that Asians don't want to express themselves. They actually feel that I can't. It's not my place right? I don't want to cause my senior to lose face. I don't want to express myself when it's not my role. It's not my place to do that. And I can see you, Sarah, I can see you smiling because you're identifying with these things. So then how do you create a culture within the organization that people are willing to say, oh, it's a safe place for me to express myself, regardless of my position in the organization. I know that the senior management or the other people on my team will listen to me. And that's what we set about to try to create inside of Kaidi and spent a lot of years and very focused years on how to create that environment. 
I mean, you know, the goal was clear. You wanted to create an open collaborative culture. And surely that's important. I struggle sometimes in that, you know, we think Silicon Valley is the best. It's created some failures and some really disasters as well in terms of culture. So I don't think it, it should be a cut, copy and paste, but certainly certain elements like, you know, being willing to speak up, being able to be open with your ideas, pushes for creativity and competitiveness, um, things like that. I think those are all good things. How do you do that, you know, tactically? How do you ensure, um, you know, I think the classic thing in Silicon Valley that's made it successful is that failure is celebrated somewhat. Um, It's just, or if not celebrated, you know, it's part of the process, right? It's not going to define you. There's this there's none of this saving face, right, which you were talking about, which is very core to Asia. How, how did you tactically implement that in Kaidi? So you actually touched on a really important point is embracing failure. I, I think, and actually, this is not just true for Asia. This is true for the United States as well. People say, oh, we embrace failure. But do you really? Do you really? Are you willing to accept when a project fails? And and let me explain the difference between, um, let's say, Sarah, you have a project with me. And there's two ways I can approach this. The project's not going well. The project's not going to work out. And people say, oh, we embrace failure. But how do we approach it when we talk to Sarah about it? And so there's two approaches. One approach is, well, why am I just hearing about this now? Why didn't you come talk to me earlier? Well, why did you do it that way? Well, why didn't you do it this way? I can't believe that you just did it this way and you, and it's turning out like this now and we're going to fail. And Oh my gosh, this is, this is a terrible outcome. Okay. I'm embracing failure. Okay. So what are we going to do next? That's one way to approach it. And people say, I'm accepting failure. There's another way, Sarah, you come to me and you say, see what this, this, this project's not working out. Am I listening to you? Okay. Let's talk about it, Sarah. What happened? Why do you think it failed? Why do you think it's not going to go forward? What can we learn from it? And how do we move differently? And you can see the difference in the words that are used is in the approach of saying, will you be open to tell me about it rather than me attacking you, making you feel bad about it? And I think these are the key things to get the team, and this is not just a tie thing, of getting them to feel open to talk about the failures. We embrace failures, but do we? Are you really, truly willing to say, it's all right. Yeah, it failed. Okay, let's move on. And as managers, as leaders, I think this was a big change for me to be able to hear my team and listen to my team to say, all right, tell me about it. Of course, I'm disappointed with the outcome. I don't want it to be like this, but it's reality. Now let's learn from it. Let's hear about it and move on and then help the person to feel comfortable to say, yeah, it didn't work out the way we planned. I'm just going to tell you about it. It failed. And I actually think that, you know, the whole idea of um, where failure is embraced I think it's embraced from the entrepreneurial side, but is it really embraced from your team? Can you really allow your team to fail and really embrace that and say, understand, it's okay, not the way we expected it to be, but we'll work on it for the next time. And I think the key point that I would like to make and what I learned along the way was the difference between a working group and the way we were taught to work 
versus how a sports team is taught to play as a team. And I think this was my big learning was we're mm-hmm. taught in the working environment, which, oh my gosh, this project failed. I'm going to talk about it and say why. And you got to tell me rather than a sports team, they lose on Sunday. Guess what? They wake up Monday, they start practicing together and working on the following, the next game and learning from it and then fixing things to make sure they win in the next game. But we don't actually do that as businesses or as Mm -hmm. managers or leaders. And I think these are the areas that I started to work on in Thailand of A, listening to the team and then really allowing them to feel free to say, yeah, it didn't work out, boss. Sorry. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know that they didn't intend for that either. Right. Yeah, I love that. I mean, the fact that you call yourself head coach all makes sense, you know, in terms of thinking about yourself as, as teams versus, um, and, and I know you make a distinction between teams and working groups as well. Yeah, so the head coach thing came about, I was inspired by a gentleman by the name of Patty Upton. He's a cricket mm. coach. I had the honor and pleasure to hear him speak in December of 2013. He changed my life. But I came home back to Thailand. I was in South Africa listening to him and he's a South African. And I came back to Thailand. I changed my title from CEO to head coach. And, and the reason I did that was I wanted to change the perspective of my team about what I do. And the reality is that CEO is about my ego and egos don't win games. My ego is not going to win a game. My team's going to win games. And That was the big shift for me. And by the way, I like being called CEO or managing director or whatever you founder. I enjoy, I like it, but that's about me. It's not about my team. It's not about my business and my employees that are going to actually make this business run. And I have a role to play. And that role is, if you think about it, if you're um, for the listeners, whether you're into um, football, soccer, or American football, it doesn't matter the sport, you'll notice the manager and the coach actually is on the sidelines during game time. Mm. The 90 minutes that is played every Sunday by the Premier League, the players on the field, the manager's not. But the other 30 hours a week prior to that game day, the coach is on the field with the players and prepping them. And what's funny about running businesses is that you think about a football team, they spend 30 hours a week preparing to play 90 minutes. We as businesses spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week playing on the field, but never preparing for it. Yeah. And it's it's a massive shift in how we... We look at our teams, and this is where we talk about working groups versus a team. A team is we come together and we know each player in the position that they play on the field. But when we're a working group, we expect to be responsible for my tasks. I'm going to get my tasks done. And when the project fails, wasn't my problem. They didn't finish their tasks. And we point the finger. So if you think about it, we're talking about Premier League. If I'm if I'm playing for Liverpool. I'm the striker on the field. If I actually behave the way we behave in business on the field while playing, it would never work. And here's the example. I'm the striker. My job is to kick the ball towards the net. I wait for the midfield to send me the ball 
And when it's sent to me, I will kick it towards the goal. Now, if I behave the way we behave in business, I say, I just got my job done. I kicked it towards the goal. I'm going to stand here and wait until midfield sends me the ball again. Yeah. Would that team ever win? Hell no. But that's the way we actually expect business to work. In sports, that, that role of striker knows mm-hmm. that's just my role when we practice and when a, get, when a play is made on the field. But guess what? I can play midfield. I will play defender. I will play goalie. I will play whatever role you want as long as we win. Mm. And this is the thing that we tried to change inside of Kaidi, which was it's not about just your role and doing your role right. It's about we win as a team. So just because you did your job well doesn't mean anything if we still lose the game. If you lose the game, <laughs> there didn't matter what happened. And yeah. I think this is the, the things that I started to transition, particularly in 2013, 2014, to understand that it wasn't about the person's performance. It's about the whole group's performance and how do we play as a team instead of looking at KPIs. And, you know, KPIs is a weird, globally, it's a weird terminology that people use. And people seem to forget that it's a key performance indicator is just an indicator. It's not the goal. And yeah. people forget this. It's, but we expect it. And your team, you set KPIs and they think, well, if I achieve my KPIs, I've done my job. Well, no, you still missed the goal. And that's in this example of strikers go, hey, I shot the ball 10 times on goal. Okay, but we still lost the game. Does it matter? It didn't matter. Didn't matter how my stats dealt with while I was on the field and I played my role, if we still lost the game, I think this is missing in managers' heads because we expect that you are responsible for your performance. Mm. But in reality, a team works as, I'm responsible for my performance, but I still want to make sure that Sarah is performing as well. And how can I help her do that? And we do it together. And Sarah's worried about not just my performance, but us as a team to make sure that we kick it in the goal and we win the game. And it's a, it's a big mind shift. I I love the framing. Absolutely. But you know, when I think about the model of startups, right. And the way that we've been, I guess, socialized to think about startups, you know, let's face it, it's a high ego business, right. And, and the reality is, and this is what my husband tells me, a lot of high performers are really psychopaths. Like you're crazy (laughs) enough to want to be willing to endure that all. Yeah. Right. So how do we, I mean, especially in, and, you know, you talk about picking the best of Silicon Valley, high ego business in Silicon Valley is what has caused a lot of issues that come from it, right? The lack of diversity, the the bad incentives that create instances like WeWork, right? With Adam's meteoric rise and then the fall. So how do we reframe and how, what would you say to, I guess, founders who are building and do have that important ego, which I think does drive them towards success as well. How do we balance that all? So my advice to founders, and in so today I'm, I've been an active angel investor for about six, seven years now. And when I talk to founders, they ask me how they should build their organization. My most important piece of advice I have is picture the place that you want to work. 
imagine that that place that, that your perfect environment and don't think about it in the money or success terms think about i wake up i go to this place and wow that's super cool the way the interactions are the place that i want to the way that people treat each other that office environment build for that picture that place and start to build for it and by the way it's going to take you years and you will never be done with it but imagine that particular office and that environment that you want to be in and build for it. And then you will start to build for it. It's not about the output metrics. And then unfortunately, a lot of the egos and a lot of what's I've witnessed over the 25 years of working in startups, both in North America and Asia, is that the egos focus on the numbers about how much you raise, how much money you're making. I love the term that, oh, but we're profitable. Yeah, you're profitable except for the fact that you're paying yourself $500 a month. You're not profitable yet because you can't even pay yourself a proper salary. They focus on these metrics rather than input metrics. All those things are output metrics. Get your input metrics right and your output will follow. Right? And so if you, my advice to the founder is picture that place that you want to work. That would be the ideal place and build for that. Mm, And you will come out with your output metrics following on to that um and again this goes back to patty upton and you know there's other movies like Moneyball and other things that you that come from the sports world what patty did was quite an amazing story and i recommend everybody to read his books and learn from him um was that he's actually a sports psychologist and Mm -hmm. he walked into a team that called the rajasthan royals in 2012 2011 and they were eighth out of ninth on the table. They were had no money. And how do you turn that team around? And his point is the game is here. And how do you get everybody working in a place that they want to work? It's not about here. It's not about the hands. It's not about the skills. It's about the brain. And how do you yeah. get your team really focused on the right topics? And it turns out focused on how much revenue we're going to do this quarter turns out to not be the right topic. It's a good goal, Mm. but it's an output metric. And how do you get the input metrics, the behaviors that you have? So in the Kaidi journey, part of the things we learned was how do we build up our values? So a lot of people talk about mission, vision, values, MVV. And the reality is your team doesn't know anything about it and care about those topics, right? Yeah. What really was our values was how we do things. And so we, def- we defined our values and I didn't, it didn't come from Tiwa. I took 15 people from across the organization, from junior to senior, put them in a room. I helped lead the session, but we discussed who is Kaidi? Who do we want to be? What's that place that we want to work in together? And we started to define those behaviors and it took us four months to get them right. Mm-hmm. And we ended up with eight values that we defined partially inspired by Delivering Happiness, Tony Shea. So we were inspired by his book. And we started to work on these values. Four months later, we came out with them. We had eight of them. We used those for three years. We ended up um, trashing those and rebuilding them again was in 2017. So that's 2014, 2017. we, We rebuilt them. And the reason we did that was because I did a survey of my team to ask them 
out of the eight values that were neon lights on the wall, how many could any single person remember? The most that anybody could remember was four out of eight. I was the wow. only person in the organization that could name all eight. I was the only one. And so I put 15 people back into a room and I gave them a goal. I said, I want to boil these down to three. Mm. And we actually got them condensed to three. For us, it was called team ownership passion. And those, those were the things that people understood. These are the, these are the behaviors that we expect. They had a lot of definitions underneath those. Um, and so we adjusted to three. And I said, basically, if you can't remember the acronym TOP, you shouldn't be working for me. Team ownership passion. Very simple, right? Right. And I think over that time, from 2014 to 2017, a lot had changed in the organization as well. Our DNA had changed. So there's things that we included in 2014 that were no longer relevant in 2017. A specific example. We had one value is called be fast and be fast for us was the definition was not only to make things happen and do it quickly was testing so the definition was the only failed experiment is no experiment at all and the reason we wrote that down was because at the time in 2014 we didn't have a culture of test and learn it was not in our dna people found it a task by 2017 we had across the organization, no less than a minimum of 10 tests happening at any given time in all different departments, from finance all the way through customer service, things were happening. And it was no longer an important piece to explicitly say on our mm. values because it was already, it was so down in the teams. This was a normal um, operating procedure for us that we didn't need to be explicit about it. So it was no longer a value for us, right? Right. So we removed it. And that, so we simplified things that were important for us and how we want to operate. One of, my, one of my favorite ones is things I learned about developing this is people say honesty. If honesty needs to be a value for your organization, you have a lot more serious <laughs> problems than, right? right? You, that should not have to be a value to their organizations. It, it should be an expected mode of operation that people are honest, transparent, ethical, and moral. If I need to be explicit and put in my value system, you really need to have a serious look at yourself. Another one that I love that I've seen over the years, family. Really? Hmm. Family. That's one of the ways that you're going to run your operation. Then I have a question for you. How do you fire your mom? This is business. It's a team. And understand that teams outgrow players and players outgrow teams. And that's okay. And it's perfectly and, fine. And that's a perfect segue for me to ask you this question. Years after the head coach has worked the team, it's time for you to depart, right? You left. I mean, you've transformed the business in so many ways. This general classifies business had all these different segments and you grew it into a different animal almost, I think, from when you started, if that's fair to say. How was that departure? And are you proud of what you've built? I, I will say there were a lot of tears upon my exit. When I realized that I was leaving the business, it took me a moment because the, the basically the new owners came in 
you know, they bought the company from me and within a couple months, they realized that I, I wasn't the right fit. They wanted to bring in their own coaching staff, which is normal, right? Yeah. New GM takes over a, a team. I want to bring in my own coaching staff. And the first time they said it to me, it, by the way, it would be disingenuous to everyone if I said, oh, I was fine with it. That's not true. I actually, when I was first told about it, I went, oh my gosh, mm. my, it's my baby. This is my team. I'm leaving it. Did I, you see I, how many I, team was? Well, I knew I had, I knew I was going to be leaving. I didn't know it was going to happen as soon as it mm. happened. And my team didn't know anything. They knew I had sold the company. They expected that I would continue to run it. And I knew that I was going to transition out within a year because I had made sure that my exit was exiting. But it didn't, I didn't know within two months of them taking over the business that they would like me to exit. And when they asked me, I went, oh my gosh. And it really didn't sink in until a few friends of mine, um, a common friend that you and I have together, she said to me, she goes, oh my God, this is the greatest thing to ever happen to you. And another buddy of mine who's a serial entrepreneur, he goes, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing to ever happen to you. I, I didn't really understand when it happened that I get to leave this business, this thing that I had built over eight and a half years at that point in time, that was my baby. And I had molded it and really learned along the way with my team that it was okay to leave it. It took me a month before that sank in going, oh my gosh, this is a great thing. Now, remember, my team didn't know this when I did it. So it took a bit of time before I announced to them. And there were a lot of tears, but people understood. And I, the way I would describe it is like, when you have a child and then they, you know, my daughter's 15, but once they get to 18 years old, they're going to go off to college. They're going to, and you're going to be an empty nester. Understanding that they grow and go is part of the DNA that teens need to understand. And even for myself as a founder, it took me a bit tears along the way because I was going, oh my gosh, it's a transition. But realizing, you know, it's okay. But the business is changing. They've got new owners. The owners actually, they grew it from when I left is 150 people. It's now 300 people. They have doubled down and grown that business in their way. Mm. Um, And it's okay. It's different than me. Yeah. Right. And, and the first question I had was, are you proud of what you've left um, yes. from where you built it? Was it, did it meet the vision of where you yeah, intended so, it, that goal, right? That first goal you talked about. Yeah. You know, as a, I'm super proud of my team and the people I got to work with and very close with many of them still now keeping active touch watching it's interesting as an entrepreneur watching how the new leadership and owners manage and lead the business. Mm. I would say I, there's some things I disagree with, but it's okay. It's not my business. It's theirs. And I have to leave that. So in terms of the, the pride and my own ego, I'm very proud of the team. I also because of my ego, want to see the future success of Kaidi because that's my legacy. But to be honest, does it really matter? No. It's yeah. that's just my pride. Yeah. yeah. Love that. Love that. 
Well, and, and, you know, just about this exit, um, for founders that are tuning in, right, there are points, I feel like every couple of years, there are points of which an entrepreneur is faced with very hard decisions, right, to step away, to evolve, to, to pivot, to take an offer. And this yeah. came to you last year and, of course, you know, was in the works from, you know, probably months or, or even a year before that. How did you make that decision that this was the right time, this was the right thing to do? Um, to be honest, it wasn't a personal decision. It was the shareholders of the company decided that, you know, they were okay to take offers and my majority shareholders. And so I was put in a position. If you had asked me in 2019, would I be selling the company in early 2020? I probably would have said no. But the shareholders said they were happy to. And so then as my job of CEO, you know, there's two hats that you wear. It's founder and CEO. My job as CEO, it was important to make sure that I did right by my shareholders. And so I had to play my role to sell the company. Mm. And was it a hard decision? Yeah. And was it a good financial decision? Yes. So I think a lot of the times, I can even say in myself during that period, was things that get in the way is your emotional side. Your ego gets in your own way of making the right decision. My shareholders forced me in the decision. If it hadn't been for them, would I be sitting here talking to you now a billion dollars moves? Probably not, <laughs> right? So I think it's it's how do you remove yourself from the equation and understand mm. that there are good things for the business and for the financial benefit of your shareholders. Ultimately, people are in this business for the financial gain in most enterprises, yeah. that the financial gain. And so are you doing the right moves to make sure that you're making those financial gains on behalf of the shareholders? And remember, there's Tiwa as CEO, but there's Tiwa as shareholder. Right. And if you had left myself as just CEO and shareholder and not pushed me to sell, I probably wouldn't have. Mm. Right. Because my ego and my identity was so wrapped up in this thing called Kaidi. Mm. And I think because the shareholders pushed me towards it, it was definitely by far the best move for the business and for me personally. But I yeah. couldn't see it at the time. Yeah. Love right. that. Well, so much to unpack, but final question before we head into billion dollar questions. And, right. and that's just a rapid fire. What next now? I mean, you're on a worldwide sabbatical for a little bit over a year now. What's next for you? You know, when I when I left Kaidi, my wife asked me, she goes, so what are you going to do next? And I told her I was taking a year off. And she said, no, I'll give you three months. <laughs> and I said, um, sweetheart, this is not a negotiation. I am now a year and five months, four months into this Um Traveling, spending time with the family, angel investing. So I have, I'm an active angel. I have deployed just this year to 10 different companies, just this year. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing that and trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. I don't, I don't know yet. I'll, I'll figure it out in the next, hopefully six months to a year to figure out what's going to be next. I'll let wow. you know when I get there, but I'm trying to decide what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> Love that. Love that. Well, and life is never a destination, really, right? Like you said, it, it's the journey. It's also, I really like how you said, um, 
you know, it's not necessarily about the outputs. In life, we are so focused on the outputs, but it's the systems and processes, the habits that you put in the play, the little bits every day that matter into the big stuff. Okay, billion dollar questions, rapid fire. So the first thing that comes to mind, um, and I can almost guess this one, but book or movie that changed your perspective significantly? Book or movie? Book, actually, Drive by Daniel A. Spink. I'm a big Mm. fanboy. If I may spend a couple minutes talking, telling a story around this. So we had a program to try to change the organization where anybody in the organization could purchase a book from Amazon. This is pre, we didn't have Kindles at the time. So it was actually physical books. We did switch it into Kindles eventually where we had Kindles offered to the whole company. Um, My head of UX bought Drive. He read it and he's Thai. He walked Mm -hmm. up to me. And in very rude pronouns, basically said, hey, bastard, threw the book (laughs) at me and said, you need to read this. I went, I'm the CEO. I went, okay, got it. Got it. I read it and it changed my life. And it talks about what truly motivates people. Mm. We think it's money and it's not. I recommend every entrepreneur to read this book and really dive into it and understand what Daniel H. Pink is talking about. Love it. What is an unusual habit that you love? Unusual habit? I'm always afraid that I asked you this question to to you. Okay. Actually, I do know. And it drives my wife crazy. Um, I need random and new people in my life. So my habit is to go out and be in the public. It can be a bar, it can be a restaurant, it can be an event. I need that that input. And when I don't know what to do, I go seek out random people and talk about stuff that that most people go, why would you even talk to a stranger about it? And for me, it's because the stranger doesn't know me, has no vested interest in what where I'm coming from. They will give me a different perspective. And it is a habit that drives my wife nuts. <laughs> Because she's like, why do you do this? And it's because of who I am. Even as a young man in my early 20s, when I was traveling, I would never eat in my room or at a restaurant by myself. I'd be at a bar. And that's the happening. Yeah. That's actually the reason that I got married. Because I have a similar thinking. And I met my husband. Because I would never, I I have the same mentality. We're traveling all the time. I would never sit in my hotel room and eat something by myself. Like, it's a waste of time. So we are built similarly. Um, it's, it. it's not normal. It's uh, most people are much more like, uh, I wouldn't want to talk to other people. But for me, yeah, randomness matters. And I get energy from people and I learn something new. I think everybody in this world has something to teach me. Hardest talking about lessons, hardest lesson as a leader. That it's not my job to be the expert and to do everything and answer all the questions. And actually, my job is not to be a technician. My job is to lead. So if I may jump into a description of this. Um, in 2007, I had raised up my one of my lead programmers, designers to be the manager of that team. And they were now my direct reports. And we were trying to grow the business. So my direct colleagues had gone off to Vietnam and Philippines to go open offices. So I was left with no management. So I lifted up this team 
And at the time I had a sales staff. And of course, having been the founder of this agency business, and I know the customers, I was answering all the sales team's questions. However, the sales team actually had a manager. And they would bypass the manager and just come straight to me. And the manager was fine with that. He's like, it's okay. It's his business. He's the leader. It's okay. But the head of production, he came to me and he goes, do I need you to stop answering the sales team's questions? It's not your job. That's Mike's job. His name was Mike, the, the sales team's man. He goes, I need you thinking about six months, 12 months, 24 months. He goes, tomorrow, that's my job. I will take care of tomorrow. So will Mike. So will the rest of us. You need to stop doing this. And it was a hard lesson because the truth is I liked answering those questions because I could figure out the answer to them and it felt good. I could see the actual results of my work and thinking about six, 12 and 24 months, that's really hard and it's not satisfying because I never see the results of my work. And so I think that was a hard lesson of knowing my role as leader of the business of being a leader rather than doing what feels good, which is me as a technician of fixing things. And so that was a very hard lesson. Love it. Highest high? Oh, highest high is meeting my wife and then having a daughter. Mm. <laughs> Those are lowest, the highest. Lowest low. We had mismanaged the business in 2008 and we had to fire 50% of the staff across Southeast Asia, which meant about 150 people. We all, as founders, we took a pay cut and I had to pull my daughter out of school. Oh, my goodness. Those advice, are the hard yards as entrepreneurship. Yeah. Advice founders should ignore. Try to go after your highest valuation that you possibly can. That mm -hmm. is not the right advice. Uh, yeah. Valuations, if you go after a high one, you're also setting yourself up for failure. Go after the proper correct valuation of your business mm. and it will serve you to your best interest rather than going after the number what are you watching on netflix hulu whatever streaming service right now oh sorry can i can i go back to yes to the last yes. one there's one more <laughs> you don't do um, well with this rapid fire there's a piece of <laughs> subtext i love it okay continue i shall allow it <laughs> thank you for no, but this it. is important i agree the, I agree. The other one for the founder is um, choose choose your board members wisely, people that you like. Yeah, just because they're rich and smart does not mean that they're going to be the best board members for you. Um, right. So choose them wisely. Okay, why am I watching? I'm watching Billion Dollar Code at the moment. Oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> Very in line with theme. And finally, this might be a nice one to round out with since you talked about your family a lot. Three qualities that you want your daughter to prioritize in her life. Oh, that's a deep question. This is not a quick fire question. This is a deep question. <laughs> Three things for my daughter to prioritize. Be genuine with people. I think it's important to be genuine not i'm not saying transparent I'm saying genuine mean what you mean and people matter and this world is the problems of this world are created by people your organization is no different 99 percent of the world's problems are not natural they are people created 
And so I think if we had more genuine people, it would matter. Next thing is um, dare to try things. It's okay to fail. It's better to try it and fail than to have never tried in your life. Genuine dare. Third one, be kind. Be kind. It matters. Love it. So those would be the three. Genuine, try, and kind. Yeah, I love that, T.Y. Thank you so much for being so kind and generous with your time. The reason I do this is because there are a lot of what's left unsaid, especially in Asia, about some of the hard lessons, some of the things that you go mm-hmm. through, and just the journey of entrepreneurship, of leading, creates a lot of trauma in between, right? But it's yes. about processing it and, and hopefully, you know, all of us rising to our best selves to be kind to each other. So thank you so much for this. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Bill and Dollar Moves.